For those perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning with our congregation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> we have been preaching from 1 Peter almost a year now, and obviously we started over a year ago, but there have been other sermons as well. Uh, and we're looking at um, the passage which begins in verse 18 of chapter 2 and runs through verse 8, I believe, of chapter 7, verse 9, rather, of chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 3, and teaches us about submission. And so we have focused on uh, a number of uh, uh, passages and messages concerning submission, and now we're looking at the submission and the suffering of our blessed Savior. And so I want to pick up with verse 21 again this morning, read through verse 25. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned unto the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Focusing this morning on the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And what a great doxology that Peter broke into beginning, uh, actually beginning all the way back in the first part of, or the middle part rather, of chapter 1, and then bringing, us, bringing it to fruition and to a climax in verse 25 of chapter 2. Let's go to his throne of grace in prayer. Father, may we commit ourselves to you this morning. May we submit ourselves to your spirit and may we understand that you are the one that judges righteously. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, Brother Logan. Thank you so much for taking care of uh, the slides this morning. The last uh, month or so, and of course Vance uh, spoke for two Sundays out of the last month, but we, we began looking at this passage of Scripture with the idea that uh, the way for us to live is to place our confidence in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically in the seven I am statements from John's gospel. And we focused on that at the end of May. Last Sunday morning, we also said the way for us to live and to die is to focus on the suffering statements of Jesus from the cross. And so this morning, we're going to bring this to a conclusion. Verse 21 tells us, To this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So follow his steps. There have been a number of, of books over the, uh, over the years written with that title, In His Steps. And so we're going to look at it in some detail this morning. I want to remind you that the English word example, and we've talked about this, means to trace out as if you were learning an alphabet. But there's far more to the Greek verbiage found here than the English, the English translation can lend itself to. In fact, the English word example is far too weak to adequately display Peter's powerful imagery. Literally, what Peter is saying is that Christ is the paradigm. Those of you that are in business, I'm sure, over the past 20 years or so have heard the term paradigm. And a paradigm is the original pattern that has no equal. So Christ is not just an example or just a, a, a model that we follow. He is the original, since he's God, obviously, one that has no equal. And so because of that, he is the one by which we write out 
the large letters of the gospel in our lives. We live that out because of who he is. Now remember, 1 Peter focuses on suffering. And Peter is writing to a group of sojourners, a group of pilgrims that have been converted and are now entering one of the first phases of Roman persecution. So he is admonishing these pilgrims, and he's admonishing you and I. The Word of God is not lost on us because it was written 2,000 years ago. It is applicable to us today, and we'll see that as we move through this passage of Scripture. We are to live as uh, submissive servants of God. We are to do that because... Jesus himself submitted himself to his Father. This essence of which is a willingness. Now, we don't volunteer for this, or we don't knowingly volunteer, but when we we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we submitted ourselves to suffer unjustly as Jesus did. That is the nature of taking up our cross. And we do this, as Peter says, by tracing our lives over his footsteps. We were at the beach a few weeks ago. Some of you have been at the beach. Some of you are headed to the beach. Some of you uh, that perhaps aren't here this morning coming back from the beach. But one of the things that you notice is that there are a number of footprints in the sand. And so that example for us, that paradigm of Jesus' steps is such that we learn that we don't step into his path and drift off into another direction. We don't claim Jesus a Savior and then say, well, I disagree with this, or uh, maybe there's another interpretation that best fits my application. No, we follow his example and his steps. Now, we're going to look at, to begin with this morning, he talks about sinlessness in verse 22. And I know that the college and career class have, over the past week or so, probably been discussing the impeccability of Christ. And we're going to look at that this morning as we move through this passage of Scripture. One of the things I want you to understand is that often we drift from the Bible, and we drift because we don't... Either we don't pay attention to it or we're not in the house of God or whatever. But it is natural for sinners to drift from the word. It supernaturally requires the power of the spirit of God to keep us focused on the word. And so we drift from truth by dismissing the details of scripture. You've heard me say hundreds of times. We are here not to rake leaves, but to dig for diamonds. And that's the intent of learning about God. And when we learn about God, more about Jesus, what I know, more of his grace to others show. When we learn about him, we learn about ourselves. So we tend to focus on the immediately practical. Trevin Wax calls calls this the pragmatic drift. What can I glean from the scriptures so that I can do something? All of us are guilty of that. And we care about theology or we care about doctrine only as it is applicable to our daily lives. But that's inconsistent with why we have the word. Why do you think Peter wrote all these words? to encourage suffering saints. We tend, because of this, not to understand how doctrinal truth does impact our daily lives every single day. What we believe about God, A.W. Tozer said, says more about us than anything else. So we complain about doctrinal emphasis. That's too much doctrine. No, it's not. Doctrine is just a method of teaching. And your children are being indoctrinated at school, regardless of the school. I was indoctrinated at school. It is a method of teaching. That's all it means. But we get all wrapped around the axle, so to speak, 
because we are, well, it's way too deep. No, it's not. Never is. Never shall be. We are incurably legalistic. Well, give me something I can do because then I can formulate my life. I can make my list. I can develop my plan. We're incurably legalistic. We're impressed with performance rather than the pertinence of Scripture. Remember, Christ's footsteps led him to the cross. They led him through the grave. They led him eventually back to his father's right hand. There are no shortcuts or apps to the Christian life. Next slide. Now, drifting from truth starts with an ignorance of the Christian, of Christ's true nature. The more we know about Christ, the more we will fall in love with him. That's what Peter's writing here. The debate about who Jesus was, about his sinlessness, verse 22, who committed no sin. The debate about this was so strong that in the first 500 years, from, say, Pentecost, around 30 to 35 A.D. until around 451 A.D., there was a, a group of uh, bishops, and we're going to talk about bishops here in a moment, that came together at, uh, in a city called uh, Chalcedon, which is in modern-day Turkey. And they developed, and the Council of uh, Chalcedon developed what is called the uh, Chalcedonian or the Chalcedonian Creed. And that particular creed, and I'm not quoting all of it, but a portion of it says that we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God, truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, in all things like unto us, except without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. So not all of us, not everyone's called to be a theologian. I'm not a theologian. I'm just, I'm a pastor. But I take theology seriously because it's important to me and it's important to you. Those of you that know Jesus as Savior, it is important. It is the study and science of God. Sometimes we bring an attitude. Gordon was teaching about attitudes this morning. And sometimes even believers develop an attitude that says, well, I don't need to focus on doctrines, on the creeds. I'll just live the Christian life. I'll just do my deeds. And that's all well and good, but the problem with that is that it only indicates that apart from theology, we don't know what the Christian life should look like. And that is of great concern in our culture today. In the subculture of born-again believism, folks do pretty much what they want to do. Does this please God? We talked about freedom several weeks ago, and we'll probably broach it again as we get into chapter 3. So in verse 22, Peter says, he's our example because he is sinless. Now this has to do, in a big word, but it's a word that you should remember, the impeccability of Christ. We'll teach you a little something this morning as we go through this. Christology is rooted in truth. Christology is a study of Christ. And it's found all the way through the Bible, not just the New Testament, all the way through the Bible. And one of the primary truths about Jesus is his sinlessness. Now, certain people define it certain ways. But historically, it has been defined as the Son of God being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did 
when the fullness of time was come, become a man with all the essential properties. We just read the Chalcedonian, Chalcedonian Creed, and it's very similar to this. And common infirmities, yet without sin. So impeccability means Christ was not only sinless, he was not able to sin. There are some things that God chooses because of his holiness that he will not nor cannot do. The Latin term for this is non posse peccare. He's not able, he's unable to sin, not able to sin. The incarnate Son of God faced real temptation. But it did not arise in him from sinful desires. Our temptation arises because we're sinners and we're tempted by desires. Christ did not have that element. Next slide. Christ not only overcame temptation, he could not be overcome by temptation. Christ's impeccability has been affirmed through church history. In the last 150 or 200 years, there has been a lot of discussion as to, well, maybe he had the ability to sin, he just chose not to sin. No. And the scripture speaks to that. We're going to see that. Christ was unable to sin. He was not peccable as you and I. His temptations were genuine. And he, because of those temptations, sympathizes with us. We just, ran, just sang, rather, a chorus about he, be, he being the shepherd. And Peter closes us out with Christ being our shepherd. Now, three p- principles about impeccability. And you need to, to kind of jot these down in, in some fashion. Number one, it can be deduced from Scripture. If Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, 8 teaches us that, his holiness is unchanging. He can't be unholy. And this is primary. Changeable holiness is inconsistent with the omnipotence of Christ. And it's in, irreconcilable with him being the author and finisher of our faith. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. If Christ were able to sin, his holiness would, by definition, be open to change and his obedience open to failure. And there are many other scriptures. This is is just a couple that are here. He He is unable to sin. Now remember that. Secondly, Christ's impeccability is tied to his divine nature. James, his half-brother, wrote, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Is Christ God? Yes. Christ cannot be tempted by evil. And that evil has to do with our desires. That's the sin nature. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. He not only resisted temptation, but because he's the Logos, the Word of God, John speaks of this in his gospel, he resisted temptation infallibly. His humanity and divinity were never at odds, nor operated independently of each other. Paul would write, Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who is able to deliver me from this body of sin that possesses me. Christ didn't pray that. You and I need to pray that. The finite will of Christ 
operated, obviously, in the permissive will of God. Talked about this a few weeks ago. The finite will invariably and perfectly obeyed the infinite will of command. Christ never experienced his flesh lusting against his spirit. Lust is a sin. And the spirit lusting against his flesh. Now, number three, impeccability is consistent with temptation. We talked about uh, an antinomy. This is one of those. Jesus became the God-man in order that the Logos, the Word, might be tempted. And he was tempted. And in this temptation, he's able to sympathize with us. Hebrews chapter 2. We preached about that a few weeks ago around Easter time. If we elevate Christ's impeccability in a way that casts aside his ability to be tempted... Yes, he could be tempted, but because he's God, he doesn't succumb to the evil. We, are conf- uh, we confuse Scripture. So those three things are essential to our understanding of who Jesus is and the fact that Peter quotes there, who committed no sin, quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. Next slide, if you would, Brother Logan. Now... His ability not to sin does not mean that his temptation was any less potent. In fact, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. I don't want you to miss this. In fact, if anything, the temptations of Christ were more intense than ours because he never yields to them. Our temptations wax and wane because we sometimes withstand them and sometimes we give in to them. But Christ never ceded. He never yielded. So the temptations only increased throughout his life. If Jesus was resistant to temptation... And why did Satan tempt him in the wilderness and and in Gethsemane? That should be a question mark. Forgive me for that. Here's another thing. This will teach you something about the nature of Lucifer, the nature of Satan, and the nature of the Son of God. Satan assumed that Jesus, the Christ, was very much like him. This is a fatal The fatal sin of idolatry. Satan desired to be like the Trinity, thinking he was like the Trinity. We desire to be like God, thinking that we can be like God. That's precisely what happened in the Garden of Eden. God does not want you to have any fun, Eve or Adam. So in order for you to be like him, eat of the fruit. Satan assumed that the Son of God was very much like him. The Latin term for the devils, we'll talk about this when we get to uh, 2 Peter, non posse, non peccare, they are unable not to sin. That's all they do. There's never a time in the life of Satan or the angels whereby they have a moment of peace. They sin continuously. Satan has always denied and avoided the reality of Christ's deity. How many billions of people on this planet do that very same thing? That is satanic. It is idolatry 
in the extreme form. It is pride. We talked about that last Sunday morning. In Hebrews, again, a lot of this taken from the book of Hebrews, Christ was tempted in every, every respect as we are, yet without sin. You see, you and I are tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, while Christ never faced tempting from the flesh. He was tempted by the world and by the devil, but not in his flesh. He was tempted in his body, obviously, but his flesh was not unholy flesh. It was not the sarks that you and I have. John Owen, marvelous little quote here from one of his books. Christ Jesus faced the suffering part of temptation. We face the sinning part. This is important to our understanding of Jesus being the shepherd and overseer of our souls. One of the commentaries that I'm um, studying, a man by the name of Dr. Carl Wynn wrote this. So committed was Christ to completing his heavenly task. So pure was he in his motives in the face of intensifying temptations that his victory over sin and Satan's scheme are all the more praiseworthy. Satanic and worldly temptations from without Jesus challenged the Savior who remained thoroughly without sin within him. You and I, sinners who necessarily and freely rebel, there's our free will, freely rebel, need Christ who necessarily and freely obeys. What a Christ. What a shepherd. What an overseer. Without sin. Next slide, brother. John Mary, a great theologian, wrote this. Christ came into the closest relation to sinful humanity that it was possible for him to come without thereby becoming himself sinful. His obedience was forged in the furnace of trial, temptation, and suffering. By these ordeals throughout the whole course of his humiliation, his heart, his mind, and his will were framed so that in each situation... As it emerged in the unfolding of, of his father's design, he was able to meet all the demands and at the climactic point of his commission freely and fully to drink the cup of damnation and pour out his soul in death. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that saves us. If he had been peccable, if he had the ability to sin, he would not be our Savior. Who committed no sin, Peter quotes. Mary goes on to say that the hypostatic union of the Son of God, hypostatic just means fully human, fully God together. It's not 50%, 50%, it's 100%, 100%. And again, there's that antinomy. The hypostatic union of the Son of God with a finite human nature confronts readers of Scripture with a relentless incomprehensibility of God. Is this the God that you worship? A God that we may know through the Word, but certainly is the more we learn of Him, the more mysterious He becomes and the more incomprehensible He becomes. I don't want a God I can figure out. Then he would be like me. With the relentless incomprehensibility of God. 
that the God-man voluntarily experienced the greatest of temptations during his earthly ministry further confounds the human mind. Greater than any temptation that you and I have ever faced or ever shall face. None of us will kneel in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood. None of us. Scripture alone is sufficient to guard the curious from straining for that which does not belong to them. The what is. And exhort the faithful to pay careful attention to that which does belong. Deuteronomy 29, 29 teaches us that the secret things belong to the Lord and they are far more secret things than there are known things. Verse 23. Because he did not sin, he did not revile. We looked at this last week, did we not? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now look over, if you would, to verse, or look down rather to verse 25, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. We're not following his path so that we can go off on our own path. We're to live righteously because of the Spirit of God. Christ did not verbally sin. We looked at this in detail last Sunday morning. Undue pressure from unjust suffering. He was silent. He trusted his righteous Father. We looked at the seven statements from the cross. Look across, if you would, or look at chapter 3 and verse 9. There Peter says, We are not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. To this you were called. That's where he begins. This is where he ends. That you may inherit a blessing. You want a blessing? Don't revile. Be silent. Next slide, sir. In verse 24, we looked as verse 23, we looked in detail last week. Let's close this out. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Because he is sinless, he's our sin bearer. He's not an animal slain in the Old Testament for sacrifice. He's the God-man. He alone bears our sin. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. The just God for the unjust man. Verses 22 and 23 indicate what he did not do. And verses 24 and 25 indicate to us what he did do. Because he is impeccable, he can bear our sin. He can carry, the word bear or bore there means to carry up to Golgotha's hill. If we were to go back in the Old Testament and we were to look at the Levitical law, we would find that even as the, the tabernacle was constructed, it was always to be placed on as much of an elevated portion of land as could be found while, they, while the Hebrew people traversed from Egypt to the promised land and then wandered for 40 years because of their great sin. We also find that when the temple was erected, that David made Jerusalem his home, Mount Moriah, being the temple mount that existed in Jesus' day and in Peter's day, because they carried the sacrifice, they were to carry the sacrifice up a hill. It was to be visible for all Israel. 
Christ died on a hill, visible to the city of Jerusalem and visible from the Temple Mount. He bore my sins. Isaiah goes on to say, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's me. That's you, if you know the Lord Jesus, bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Edmund Clowney, in his commentary on 1 Peter on this particular passage, says this, and Clowney's been with the Lord now for about 10 years. He closed out his ministry in Charlottesville, Virginia, at uh, First Presbyterian Church there. He wrote this, We lack Peter's preparation for understanding Christ as a sacrifice. We don't understand this. We have the imagery, but we don't understand it. We've never seen it. We lack his preparation for understanding Christ's sacrifice, the lamb whose precious blood redeems us. We have not witnessed, as Peter did, the offering of lambs and bulls and goats on the altar of sacrifice. The symbolism is not vivid in our minds. The weight of his cross could be put on another. Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross up Golgotha's hill for Jesus. But the weight of sin was his alone to bear. Should anyone think lightly of his sin, and Peter could not, you and I cannot, we should not. Then to see the agony of the Son of God must call him to think again. Jesus bore our sins personally in his own body. You talk about a personal Savior. Jesus bore my personal sins in his body personally. They were intimate to him in a way that he did not become a sinner but was made sin. If our death does not confront us with the wages of sin, then his death must. That such a price was paid by the Son who gave his life, by the Father who the Son is the measure of the measureless love of God. What a statement. Love wins. Not all love wins, but the measureless love of God will and does. Next slide. Verse 24 also says, because he is our sin bearer, he suffered so that we are healed. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that everyone that has an illness will be healed if we claim the name of Jesus. There were many, many, many that Jesus came in contact with that he did not heal. All we need to do is look at the pool of Bethesda in John's gospel. The only one he sought out was the man lame from birth. This has to do with the sovereignty of God. Understand this clearly. And also understand the context. Peter is writing to the suffering believers of the suffering Christ who was wounded. And from those wounds, his blood was shed that covered our sin. The word heal there means to be cured, to be made whole. But this likewise means that he healed us with his atonement 
It can't be physical healing, for we are all subject to the consequences of our sin, and if that were the case, not a single solitary believer would ever die. God has answered many, many, many prayers of many of you and of me being healed temporarily of illnesses. But there will come a time when the Lord says, it pleases me to call you, Ernie Carey, home. I can go home with the assurance that I was healed from sin by the wounds of our shepherd and overseer. Can you? The healing that he gives to us came at great cost. The wounds, the stripes. Peter watched Jesus heal with his hand. Used his spittle on one occasion. But here we are, we are healed by the wounds inflicted upon our Savior from the hands of others. His wounds heal suffering from its root, the curse of sin. His wounds suffered sin's penalty for us. To this you were called, Peter said. And our calling is to follow his reproach, his reviling. And then verse 25 this morning. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're healed because he is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. David wrote in Psalm 51, I believe. No, Psalm 142, I'm sorry. Psalm 142, he wrote, No man cares for my soul. <coughs> David also knew that Jesus is the shepherd, the good shepherd. John 10, that great analogy that Jesus uses in verse 11, he says, a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, they're not his. My sheep hear my voice, and I call them, Jesus said. They're mine. And no one takes them out of my hand. But a wolf, a hireling, a false teacher, Satan sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep, kills some, scatters the other. Ironically, here the Lamb of God is also our shepherd. The one who is the good shepherd. The hireling was hired by professional shepherds and often did not have the welfare of the flock in his heart. Jesus goes on to say in John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be, there will be one flock and one shepherd. Just one. Next slide, brother. David would write, the Lord is my shepherd is perhaps, it's certainly one of the most familiar passages of Scripture and certainly perhaps the most quoted psalm. 
David said, if the Lord is my shepherd, I should never have a need or want for anything. The good shepherd constantly watches out for sheep. He's doing that this morning, by the way. If you're here this morning, you're a child of God. He is feeding you through an under-shepherd because he's a good shepherd. In Mark's gospel, we are told Peter is well acquainted with these words. Jesus would say, all of you, on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter said unto him, even if all are made to stumble, Lord, it won't be me. Same God's writing this. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. All of them were scattered, including Peter. But the shepherd called Peter once again on Galilee's shore. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I will give you the spirit. I will send you the comforter. I made that promise to you, but you, that part of the... Part of the work of the, of the comforter is that he's going to empower you to teach the word of God. Peter, feed my sheep. He did not say, Peter, entertain my sheep. He did not say, Peter, amuse my sheep. Peter, he didn't, he didn't say to Peter, Peter, ignore my sheep. Peter, give them what they want to hear. No. Feed my sheep. Jesus is a shepherd. He's not a slave master. And a shepherd guides his sheep. The sheep of Jesus don't stray very far or for very long. Yes, yeah, sometimes we do. And he uses the rod and staff, which David would have been familiar with because he was a shepherd, to convict and correct. The shepherd provides, he protects, he relentlessly pursues us with goodness and mercy all of our days. He's like the 90 and 9. We're told in Luke's gospel, that parable, where the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to the wilderness to claim just one. He relentlessly pursues his sheep. He takes you as you are, but he is not going to leave you as you are because he's good. Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Peter uses that quote here. We're sheep going astray. We're we're, we're roaming. We're wandering because of deception. And then he uses the phrase return. I want to return. I want to turn about again to be converted. Once, he says, you were like sheep going, but now you have returned. And you've returned to one that is far greater than any that you could ever imagine. The shepherd and the overseer of your souls. John 10, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. They listen. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. They don't earn it. I give it to them. And they will never perish. No one snatches them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, and he's greater than all. Because I and the Father 
are one. Next slide, brother. So Peter is framing the end of this particular book, the end of this doxology that he begins in verse 21. In the light of the shepherd, and that word in the New Testament means pastor. In light of the shepherd's steps. Even through unjust suffering, he can be trusted because he's the chief shepherd. Look over to chapter 5 for a moment, if you would. Chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter would be remiss if he didn't challenge the, the under-shepherds. And he says, verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. This flock is among you, Serving as overseers, very same word found in verse 25. Episcopos, bishop, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he's the chief shepherd, I will answer to him, Vance will answer to him. Those of you that teach the word of God will answer to the chief shepherd. Ernie, there were times you didn't shepherd my sheep like you should. Feed my sheep. The word episkopos there is the word bishop, it's the word overseer. It is interesting that in verse 18 he talks about submitting ourselves to those that, that are our bosses. And he closes out this particular passage by using the phrase overseer. Now the word episkopos is one that's charged to protect, to preserve his flock. There are under-shepherds. We need to submit so that we oversee to the chief shepherd. You see, shepherd is Christ's title, but the guardian is his function. What does a shepherd do? He guards the sheep. The word episkopos, the latter part of that is scopos. The word scope, microscope. Stethoscope, telescope, it's an instrument, any instrument to use to see small things, listen to those to see things far away. The scope enhances our ability to see. In front of that word is the little prefix epi. And it intensifies the word scope. It means to look sharply. It means to examine. It means to judge. In the Greek army, the episkopos would show up unannounced. They were bishops. They were not part of the army. And although they were pagan, they were charged with the... the uh, uh, they had the charge, rather, of, of surveying the Greek troops and to see whether or not they were prepared for battle. If they weren't, he would, chas he would chasten them. And if they were, he would reward them. Episcopos was a super looker to scope in on the details. Mom would ask me, son, have you had a bath? Yes, ma'am. What's that ring around your neck? 
She was a super looker. That's Jesus. He loves us. What a sad shepherd Jesus would be if he died for souls and then did not care for them. What a sad under-shepherd Vance and I and others would be if we didn't care for you. If we didn't teach and preach the unadulterated word of God. If we didn't teach you about Christ. Spurgeon said, when the pangs shoot through our body and ghastly death appears in view, people see the patience of the dying Christian. Our infirmities become the black velvet on which the diamond of God's love glitters all the more brightly. Thank God I can suffer, he preached. And Spurgeon did suffer. He died at 56. Thank God I can be made the object of shame and contempt. For in this way God shall be glorified. We don't know the condition of our souls from one day to the next. Nor we, do we know the level of our soul's sanctification. We know we need to be sanctified, but we don't know the level of it. Again, incurably legalistic. However, our bishop knows, because his eye is not simply on the sparrow, it's on our souls. Jesus is the paradigm for our footsteps. The primo example. He knows the secrets of our hearts. And he watches over our souls. Jesus was the overseer of Peter's heart and soul. He warned him. He called him to watch and pray in Gethsemane, and he called him to feed his sheep at Galilee. He restored Peter, and he will restore you and I. Household slaves were things to Romans, and bodies alone to the Greeks. But these that Peter is writing to are all saved. They are called kingdom of priests, subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you and I, because he is the shepherd and the guardian of our precious souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this beautiful doxology. We thank you that Jesus, because he is sinless, because he is yet without sin in any form, and yet can be tempted in a fashion that we will never know. He did not succumb because of his holiness, died for us and imparts his righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us with a measureless love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>
died for personally. And so we encourage you this morning as we sing the invitation hymn that if you make your way out of the pew, we can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can save you, uh, take you to a, saving, to a uh, prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd of our soul. Teach this to your children. They need to know this. If you're here today as a child of God, and the Lord uh, perhaps is leading you into the fellowship here at Flat Creek, and you know the Lord is Savior, Maybe you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to, to make that decision today and follow him in the first step of obedience. Join us with either statement of faith or transfer of letter. We encourage you to do that as a child of God. What a convicting yet comforting passage of Scripture. And Peter continues on and on through both of these epistles. Peter fell in love with this Jesus because Jesus fell in love with him. What number, Brother Vance? 334. 334. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Mm -hmm.